Welcome to Hard Truths by Vertex. This is where we peel the layers and uncover raw, unobvious industry insights and venture capital knowledge across Southeast Asia and India. We interview some of the world's top leaders in tech, innovation, and capital formation to hear the stories of enlightening discoveries, as well as aha moments to help early-stage entrepreneurs navigate their building journey. I'm Elise Tan, and I'm your host for this episode of Hard Truth by Vertex. I'm really glad to have Ben Matthias on the show today. Ben Matthias is the managing partner at Vertex Venture Southeast Asia and India. I worked with Ben over the past year, and I find him to be a really humble person, despite his wealth of experience in venture capital and technology companies in Silicon Valley. So today, we are going to uncover his brilliance, his insights, and hard truths about startups, VC investment, and life. So hi, Ben. Hi, Elise. <laughs> Thank you for having me here on the show. I'm really happy too. And uh, how have you been these days? Uh, well, it's been a busy few weeks here in Singapore. We had a couple of conferences. So I am looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> so um, I'm really happy that you spent the time today to speak with us. So um, I... I know that you know you have a wealth of experience in venture capital, but before that, you actually switched from being in a corporate, right? So, do you want to let us know a little bit um, how does that happen? How did you change from being an executive at a technology companies into being in venture capital? Quite by accident, actually. Uh, it so happened that one day I was having lunch with a college senior of mine, Kitu Kolori. And Kitu was somebody I had uh, looked up to and was in touch with for several years. Uh, he had just sold his third company, I believe, and had switched from being an entrepreneur to becoming a venture capitalist. So he had just joined NEA. And over the course of the lunch, he asked me if I would be interested in talking to NEA. And I, my first response was that I had absolutely no background on venture capital. So Kitu said, it's okay if you don't have the background, as long as you are a cultural and personal fit for the firm, we will teach you the business. Uh, they were looking for somebody to start the India operations for the firm. And so I went in and I talked to the partners and everything worked out. And I joined NEA initially working at the Silicon Valley office. And a year later, I moved to Bangalore and opened their India office. That sounds so exciting. And I was reading about NEA, right? So... Um, they raised nearly $24 billion in total uh, under AUM. Uh, that was in 2020. So it's a really huge company, you know, doing lots of interesting investments. So, you know, how... how I, I think that's such a fantastic opportunity to join such an established VC firm, right, with a switch. Um, were you feeling, you know, a bit worried at the time that you may not be able to um, maybe live up to the expectations? Tell me, tell us more about it. Well, I had tremendous mentors at NEA. So Kitu Kolori for one, uh, Mark Perry, who is uh, now a retired venture capitalist, was a, a great mentor. Uh, Ravi Vishwanathan, who now runs Newview Capital, was another mentor. Uh, so I learned a lot at the firm. And I was there for almost nine years. And then uh, in 2015, I happened to have breakfast with the Juhok from Vertex. Uh, now, I, I had just led the investment into First Cry, uh, at NEA, and coincidentally, Vertex had done the previous round. So Juhok was in Bangalore. He reached out and asked me if I could meet for breakfast. And that conversation turned out to be one about opportunities at Vertex. And Vertex was just getting ready to spin out the Southeast Asia and India fund into a separate independent fund. 
And I came to Singapore, met with uh, Keylock, met with uh, our chairman and deputy chairman, and uh, things worked out. And I ended up joining as the third managing partner for Vertex Southeast Asia and India in 2015. Wow, it must be really exciting times. And I want to... Uh, also go back, you know, to the time that you made the switch from being in corporates and then into venture capital. So firstly, uh, how did your family respond, you know, to the career switch and later on, very quickly to a location switch? Gosh, my family and friends all thought I was crazy. <laughs> yes, and you're in, changing your career at the age of 38. That's correct. So in retrospect, it was a crazy thing to do. Uh, as you said, the age of 38, I was changing to a completely different career. And even more difficult, I was changing to a completely different geography. Now, India was the place I'd grown up in. I lived there as a child and as a student. I'd never worked a single day in India. Uh, since the age of 22, India was just a vacation spot for me. So moving from a, to a different career and to a different country was kind of a difficult thing to do. But we did have a lot of close family and close friends in India, so we did have a support system. So when we moved back, it wasn't that difficult. And bear in mind, the country was going through tremendous optimism at the time. Uh, this was 2007, and it was 15 years after the major financial reforms that had been done by the government in 1992. And the country was seeing the benefit of those reforms. So there was tremendous economic growth. There was a lot of optimism in the country, and a lot of people were moving back from the United States and from other parts of the world. So it was a good time to go back to India and get set up. Yeah, I think logically your change definitely makes sense. Um, but I just want to ask you, you know, what is the hard truth about transitioning from corporates to VC? Well, transitioning from corporates to VC, it's a very different world. Uh, in a corporate, first of all, you have a team that works for you and you have clear lines of delegation. You can... If you can delegate things to your team and if things don't happen, you can assign it to somebody else. If somebody doesn't do their job, you can fire them. Here as a VC or an individual contributor, you basically are responsible for the work that you do and the decisions you make. And you have very little leverage over the outcome. Now, the only time you have leverage is when you make an investment decision. So you do the best you can to evaluate the founder, to evaluate the market, to evaluate the company, its differentiation. But once the money goes in, you are totally dependent on the founding team and what they do. Authority doesn't hold any longer. Now, in the corporate world, you have authority. You have authority over your team. You can basically give instructions, give orders, and things happen. With, in the VC world, it's influence that is important. Authority doesn't matter. You have to be able to influence your founders. And the only way to do that is to build that relationship with the founders that they trust you, they look up to you, and they would value your opinion and your advice. So it's a very different world being in the corporate world versus being in the venture capital world. And I think that in terms of mindset and personality, that was something you have to shift as well, right? So tell us more about it and why it's a hard truth. Well, my personality did have to go through a change in... 2006, when I had switched from the corporate world to a VC world. Now, in the corporate world, you interact with people in your comfort zone. So you interact with the people that you work with. Maybe you interact with your customers. Maybe you've got to deal with potential new clients. In the VC world, you're talking to new people every single day. You have 
in founders coming to pitch to you, sometimes in a given day, you may meet three different sets of founders. Um, in a given week, you could meet 10 different sets of founders. And some of them may make sense, some of them may not make sense, but you have to be able to interact with them. And you have to be able to, first of all, you have to treat them with respect because they are, at the end of the day, doing something that they believe in. So it is a skill set that has to be developed. The other thing about being a venture capitalist is that you are networking all the time. You have to network. You have to build relationships because you never know when a relationship may be important. I'm looking at a company today. I need to do diligence on it. I suddenly recall, hey, three years ago, I met somebody that was doing something similar. Let me give her a call and get her feedback. Now, three years ago, when I met this person, I didn't know that I might need to use that contact in the future. So I did have to go through a personality shift. I had to become a lot more interactive. I had to become a lot more of a people person because at the end of the day, the VC business is a people business. Definitely. And I think as a firm, we truly believe that it's a people business and also it's about uh, nurturing leaders in, in what whichever field, you know, whichever areas that um, they choose to solve the problem in. Yeah, and I think um, that's what, you know, really motivate me as well in coming to Vertex, uh, working every day. I also want to share, you know, one uh, hard truth is that we definitely have to have good memory because you mentioned about how you remember a meeting that was three years back and you never knew how you could um, actually culminate in a, a useful conversation afterwards, right? Yeah, so that's something that strikes me. What is something that you have to learn and unlearn? Well, so the thing, the main thing you have to learn when you become a VC is something called critical thinking. Now, again, in an operator role, let's say you are responsible for sales or you're responsible for customer success, your, your role is very clearly defined. You know exactly what your metrics are. Uh, as a VC, you're looking at different companies every day. And you may look at something as diverse as in the morning, you may look at a new direct-to-consumer brand. In the afternoon, you may look at something that is uh, a new technology solution for climate change, and the next year you may look at the next greatest payment solution. All three very different businesses. Now, everything seems attractive initially. Founders obviously make a very good pitch. They make a very compelling value propositions. The thing that you have to learn is critical thinking. So I always tell this to people who work with me at Vertex. Don't think about why you should invest in this company. Think about why you should not invest in this company because that's when all the critical thinking comes out. Think of all the things that could go wrong and how would you mitigate that? And that's when you finally identify that one in 100 company that you are so compelled with that you really believe that you have to invest in. And I think that this is the beauty of this business because from on one side, entrepreneurs, you know, is really brimming with optimism. And for us, you know, I'm not saying that we are on, on in terms of pessimism, but the thing is, we do give them another perspective. And I want to hear, you know, the lessons that you learn in, in uh, corporates. Yeah, how, how have you been able to apply over here? Well, so some of the things I learned in the corporate world, um, of course, I left the corporate world 16 years ago, in 2006. But interestingly, interestingly enough, a lot of the tenets hold good even today. I mean, there are some fundamental things that regardless of whether you're in 2022 or 2012 or 2002, they hold true. So let me share three of them. So the first one, of course, 
most important for any company is the customer always comes first. The most important stakeholder in your business is the customer. Uh, I used to work for a software company that was doing very innovative things, was very successful. But somewhere along the way, they ignored the voice of the customer. Now, when the chips were down, the customers abandoned the company. So never lose sight that the customer always comes first. Number two, your employees always need to feel challenged. Now, you can pay your employees a lot of money. But if they don't feel challenged, if they don't feel they're doing something interesting, they will leave. So that's the second thing. The third thing here is the executives need to stay engaged with the team. Now, of course, when you're a startup, everybody's in one room. The founders are in the same room as the, as the developers, as the finance people. As the startup grows and as they get more money, there is a tendency to build a C-suite. And all the executives will be on one floor and everybody else will be on a different floor. Now, what, hap what happens in that situation is that the C-level execs lose touch with the people in their teams. The CFO needs to be with the finance team. The head of sales needs to be with the sales team. The head of operations needs to sit with the operations team. So never lose touch with the team. Thank you for sharing the advice and also the hard truths. I must say that, you know, for the past year, we have been interviewing as many as 20 of our portfolio founders. And I'm really thrilled to see that uh, customer centricity is one of the mo most important things that they stress on. Yeah, and I think this is like what Ben Matthias mentioned is really important. Without the customers, there's no business, right? I also noticed that you joined NEA in 2007, and this is just before another global financial crisis. And right now, you know, we, we are talking about a slowdown in VC funding and potential economic downturn. So I re would like to hear more about, you know, what was it like back then in the VC and startup environment? And did you see any similarities between what was happening uh, now and then? Well, I've actually lived through three crises. The first one was 2001, where I was working on the other side. I was in a technology company at that time. And then, of course, 2008 and now 2022. Uh, I see 2022 as being very similar to 2001. And the reason is because both are somewhat caused by the private markets and by the bubble in the startup environment. And in both situations, companies have been overfunded, companies that didn't need that much money. So you've had entrepreneurs that went out to raise $10, $15 million, but investors told them take $100 million. Now, when you give a company $100 million and they only need 10, they will find ways to spend that 100, but they will spend it inefficiently. And at the end of the day, they will build businesses that are not sustainable. I use the example of Lake Mead in the United States. Now, Lake Mead has been drying up and the water level has been receding. And now that the water level has come down uh, so low, you can actually see skeletons at the lake bed. And that's what's happening today when the capital has dried up, you can actually see businesses that were built inefficiently without a proper foundation, those businesses are being exposed. So the companies today that are actually doing well are the companies that could not raise a lot of money last year and the year before. And because they had less capital, they built more efficient businesses, more capital efficient businesses. They've figured out ways to get profitable. So today they are growing and they are profitable. We have companies in our portfolio where the founders couldn't imagine, why do people not want to fund me? Whereas everybody else is getting $50, $100 million. And we kept telling them, don't worry about it. Focus on your business fundamentals. Focus on your unit economics. 
which is what they did. Uh, now, these companies today are, in some cases, almost $100 million in revenue and profitable and don't need any capital. Which are these companies? Sure, I can give you a couple of examples of companies that I personally am involved with. Uh, so one of them is a company called Kisht. Now, Kisht is a digital lending company in India, which gives uh, short-term loans, three to six-month loans. Um, unfortunately for them, this is two, more than two years ago, they had um, they were all set to close around, and then that investor backed away for some reason. And after that, it was very difficult for them to raise raise any financing because they were their reputation was sort of clouded because everyone knew that they were going to raise money from this investor and that didn't happen. So everyone thought there was something wrong with the company. Now the founders said, they took this in their stride. They said, we don't have the capital, but let's work on our business so that we get profitable. And that's what they did. They built a business, they tweaked their business model so that they could still grow without the fundraise. They became profitable. Today they're a, uh, significantly large revenue company. I don't want to mention the number because it's confidential, but they are profitable and uh, growing very well. And uh, now there are a lot of investors wanting to invest in them. Uh, another example is, is Ace Turtle. Ace Turtle went through a similar situation. Uh, at the time of COVID, uh, some of their business took a hit, but they turned that into their advantage. Uh, once COVID hit, they actually changed their business model. And a lot of offline brands that were earlier dependent on them just for technology came to them and said, take over our entire business and manage the stores, manage the, the marketplaces. And that really transformed their business. So they, they used a bad situation and converted it into a good situation. And they also are growing and profitable. Thank you for sharing these stories. I really love these stories because like you say, they have managed to turn their business around. They managed to look at what are the other opportunities in the horizon and make it um, you know, something profitable. So I, I love to hear these stories about our portfolio companies. You, know, you have shared quite a bit about your career switch. You have also shared about your experience from the past financial crisis and, and also distill the insights and hard truths for entrepreneurs these days. So I would like to actually go into uh, more of the venture investing side. Yeah. So for you, you know, I think that you have such a unique position because you look at opportunities not just in India, but also Southeast Asia. Yeah. So I, I love that because um, when you look at industry across these different regions, we start to see a lot of different data points and we get uh, an even more comprehensive picture of how the markets are doing and how the founders can actually operate across these different markets. Yeah, so I also want to first ask you, you know, what are you excited about in Southeast Asia and India for the next few years or even next decade? Boy, I am very excited right now. And I do believe the next decade will be the golden age of venture capital in this region. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why. So first of all, uh, this region, Southeast Asia plus India together is a $7 trillion economy. And um, it is important from the point of view that any startup that gets created in this region eventually expands geogra geographically to cover the entire Southeast Asia and India. Um, some of the fastest growing economies in the world are in this region, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines. So if you project this out in the next 10, 15 years, this could be a $15 trillion economy, Southeast Asia plus India, which is on par with the United States, with China, with the EU. So any startups getting created today will be building businesses for this $15 trillion economy. Now, 
if you look at some other macro facts, we have 1.3 billion internet users, active internet users in this region. Is the total number of US plus China put together. We have that number. The last few years, we've been adding 200 million internet users per year. So if you forecast the growth out in the next few years, we will reach 2 billion internet users, which is higher than all the rest of the countries put together. Now, these internet users are primarily millennials and Gen Zs. 56% of our population is either a millennial or a Gen Z. So these are digitally savvy users. These are people who do most of their shopping online. Uh, these are people who are very active on social media. And these are people who do their payments digitally. So the situation is very, very ripe for innovative startup companies to target these consumers and also for SMEs to transform themselves by adopting digital technology. So I am very, very excited. This is a great time to be investing in this region. Wow, 1.3 billion internet users. I think that sounds you know, really exciting and I'm really happy to see what kind of uh, you know, startups that can be coming out to serve these consumers. So Ben, you know, I was looking at your uh, work experience and I realized that your corporate experience has been in technology companies that are serving supply chain. So I would like to start with uh, supply chain vertical, you know, tell us more about what is going to happen in this vertical across Southeast Asia and India. Yeah, actually 10 years of my corporate experience was in supply chain. I worked for two different supply chain companies. And that is, of course, in the US where we built technology to make supply chains, primarily US oriented supply chains or eventually global supply chains more efficient. Now, in this part of the world, supply chains for the most part, are unorganized because they consist of small manufacturers uh, that are fairly fragmented. There's a lot of coordination that's needed between these manufacturers, uh, between the stockists, the distributors, the retailers, consumers, and a lot of this happens manually through email, through phone calls, through SMSs. And uh, I remember reading a McKinsey study recently which said that less than 2% of companies have visibility in their supply chain beyond one or two nodes. Now, this is an opportunity for any company that is building technology or building infrastructure to enable supply chains. So we've actually backed companies like uh, Janio is an integrated cross-border logistics platform uh, operating in several countries in Southeast Asia, providing e-commerce logistics, freight forwarding, custom clearance, um, servicing goods over $2 billion annually. We've also backed a company called Aruna that is trying to revolutionize, revolutionize the fisheries supply chain. Uh, they're actually working with more than 36,000 small fishermen in Indonesia. Many of these small fishermen have maybe one boat, two boats, but they are now getting supply chain visibility all the way to their end customer. They're able to pick who they want to sell to, pick the prices that they want to sell their product to, completely transform that industry. Uh, in the past, we were investors in Express Bees, which is now the second largest e-commerce logistics provider in India. We were the Series A investor there. So I believe there is tremendous opportunity for innovation and supply chain management in this region. Thanks for sharing that. And to me, supply chain is so key in Southeast Asia and India because what we are talking about is not one you know, continental mess, land mess. You know, we are talking about really... Um, places that needs boat to reach, to, you know, uh, to navigate between uh, the different islands and all that. So can you tell us a little bit, right, um, 
for example, in Indonesia, we have so many islands. In Philippines, we have so many islands. How can supply chain be quickly enhanced, especially in discount markets? Well, the fact that you have so many islands makes the problem even more difficult to solve. But it's not unsolvable. And the innovative companies will figure out a way using technology to basically give visibility to supply chains that could basically sit across multiple islands, multiple countries, multiple continents. It's a tech problem at the end of the day. Yeah, Indonesia, as you said, is I think 22,000 islands. But that's exactly what Aruna is doing. Aruna fishermen are fishing across these 22,000 islands. Uh, and what the company has been able to do is integrate that supply chain. So it is possible with the right founders, the right technology, the right business model, you can actually provide supply chain visibility across all these islands. And both Aruna and Janio are doing exactly that. Yes, I, I really love the story of Aruna. I interviewed uh, Yutari, who is the, one of the co-founders for the business. And she was telling us about how they really go to each of the villages, educating the uh, fishermen and the family, giving jobs to um, the fishermen wives. You know, uh, I think all this is great in terms of also alleviating poverty, increasing livelihood of um, the locals in these markets. So I'm really looking forward to how technology is going to transform and uplift lives. I also want to uh, ask you about consumer because, you know, obviously you have been on the board of many consumer companies, starting with uh, First Cry and then we have Captiva as well. So quite a few. So tell us about opportunities in this area. Yeah, I mentioned earlier about millennials and Gen Zs. Now, these are new age consumers. So a couple of things about these new age consumers. One is they are the future earners of tomorrow. Uh, 10 years from now, they will be the people earning the highest income. Uh, they are increasingly aspirational, which means they want to buy new things. They are, because their standard of living has been going up, they want to try out new brands. At the same time, they are value conscious. So there is an opportunity here for new brands to be created that appeals directly to this age group. Um, and the way that they would appeal is by engaging directly with them. Now, this age group, as I mentioned, is very, very social media engaged. They would basically buy new brands that they identify with, and they would get that identification on social media. They would watch influencers that they trust. They would get the opinion of those influencers. So the use of social media, the use of the creator economy is going to be critical here for the consumer economy. And we are seeing brands, you mentioned Kapiva. Kapiva has taken a 2,000-year-old medical formulation, which traditionally has been, in India, has been something your grandparents gave you and forced you to have as a child. It, it was a bitter medicine that only your grandparents believed in. Today, they have been able to package that and market it to people in their 20s. And all it takes is coming up with a messaging that appeals to that generation, coming up with something that they can identify with. And Kapiva is growing double-digit growth every month. So that is what the new age consumer is going to be looking for. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for startups that are building new brands that are willing to sell these brands direct to consumer using technology. I love that you use the example of Capiva because 
um, here in Singapore, you know, we have something called a traditional Chinese medicine. So I was just imagining, you know, how can TCM be um, popular? How can TCM be, uh, you know, catering to the younger crowd? And I think this is actually a big challenge. And I'm glad Kativa has done it so well. I also want to ask you, you know, in terms of looking at the consumer market, uh, is there going to be a difference between India and Southeast Asia? You know, in, because for me, I think it's a, it's a question of curiosity because uh, we have very different uh, levels of internet penetration. We have very different ways of uh, interacting with the social media. So just, just wondering, you know, would there be any difference that you foresee? Not much difference, to be honest. I think these are very similar markets. Um, again, the, the population is very young. Population is very social media savvy. Population spends a lot of time online. So the types of consumer companies we are seeing both in Southeast Asia and India are very similar. So we've invested in Kapiva in, in India. Uh, we've seen similar companies in Indonesia. Not obviously not based on Indian formulations, but we've seen health food companies in Indonesia. We invested in First Cry in India. So very similar uh, types of businesses. So the trends that we see, the good thing about being a Southeast Asia and India venture capital firm is that we can learn from each other. If we see a company in India that we may have evaluated, we may see a similar one six months later in Thailand. And we can use the learnings that we got from the evaluation of the company in India to evaluate the company in Thailand. Yes, and I actually especially love our weekly Wednesday meetings where ev everyone uh, from different markets are at the table and we are discussing from our different perspective how would a company look like you know, if they were to, um, from one market, expand to another. And what is the opportunity as a whole? And I would like to actually go into fintech because fintech is such an important vertical in this part of the world. So tell us more about the opportunities across Southeast Asia and India. Well... In terms of fintech, I would say this region has really leapfrogged the rest of the world. We have gone straight from cash to phone payments. So we've leapfrogged that credit card era. And today in this region, India, for example, 40% of all mobile payments worldwide happen in India. I think number three is Thailand. So Southeast Asia and India have definitely leapfrogged the rest of the world. There is Tremendous innovation happening in fintech. And let me just talk about two areas of innovation since we don't have time to cover them all. So the first one is digital lending. And given the large population, there is a large need for credit, both from consumers as well as from SMEs. Now realize that in this region, 60% of the people are either unbanked or underbanked. And most fintechs today are actually targeting that 40% that are banked. So there is an opportunity for digital lenders to target the underbanked who need credit. And this is both SMEs as well as consumers. So take the example of Kisht in India, which has built a very successful business, as I mentioned earlier, just lending to the underbanked. Or SCB Abacus in Thailand, which has also built a very successful business lending to SMEs in Thailand. So that is number one. Digital lending. Now, the second thing I want to talk about here is open banking. Now, what does open banking refer to? Uh, so this refers to the unbundling of banking services so that banks and financial institutions that manufacture financial products can sell them directly on consumer-facing platforms. 
So what do I mean by that? Let's say I go buy a TV on Amazon and I want to get that financed. Now at the checkout on Amazon, I can click a button and say, yes, I want to get this. I want to pay for this in installments. Now, there is a bank at the other end, and this could be a bank I've never heard of, and I don't even care to know which bank it is, but there is a bank at the other end that is giving me that loan. And that bank has now accessed me through Amazon without me having to step into the branch at all. Or let's say I go on a travel website. Let's say I go to Traveloka and book a rental car to travel between cities, and I get, a, get an insurance for that rental. It may be some stodgy old world insurance company that is selling me that insurance, but that insurance company has now accessed me through the travel website. So there is a democratization of the whole financial services infrastructure that is happening because of what we call open banking. Now, let me mention a couple of other very important developments. So you may have seen the news that the five central banks in the five largest central banks in Southeast Asia have agreed to create a common QR code infrastructure. That is very exciting. And let me tell you what that means. So what that means is that if I have a DBS account here in Singapore, I can go to Thailand and make a payment in Singapore dollars using my DBS app. It doesn't have to get converted to US dollars and then back into Thailand currency. It is a direct payment from my Singapore currency to the Thailand currency. Uh, now, this is going to transform digital payments in these five countries. Similar thing happened in India a couple of years ago, a few years ago when UPI came out. And now everyone in India, even a small vegetable vendor on the street, basically asks for payment on the phone. Nobody accepts cash anymore. So I think the whole concept of payments, the whole concept of banking is going to transform in the next few years. So fintech is a big area of focus for us here at Vertex. Thank you for sharing all this. I would like to also mention about the example of SEB Abacus because uh, recently we actually interviewed Dr. Sutapa, who is the co-founder of SEB Abacus. I realized that the Money Thunder app actually allows SME to get a loan within 90 minutes. And to me, that is super fast and uh, is, is great because now we are looking at giving more liquidity to our um, sellers who are in uh, small enterprises and then allowing them to do more business than before. And uh, th this really gives us a lot of uh, opportunities, you know, for the emerging markets to grow even faster. So I also want to ask you, you know, how is the landscape going to change in Southeast Asia and India? Yeah, so there are a large number of MSMEs, medium to small businesses in Southeast Asia and India. I think it it's about 110 million in India and 70 million in Southeast Asia. And in Southeast Asia, for example, the 70 million SMEs contribute to 67% of the employment. Now, COVID led to a very extraordinary shift in consumer behavior because people stopped going to their neighborhood store and they started buying online. So the SMEs realized that they had to transform in order to survive. And so, a very bad situation in COVID actually turned into a very good situation for the SMEs because by transforming digitally, they are now able to compete against the large e-commerce companies. So I'll give you a couple of examples of companies in our portfolio that are helping with this transformation. So we invested recently in a company called Fairbank in Indonesia. Now Fairbank digitizes supply chain financing for merchants without the need for collateral. So small merchants 
typically don't have the credit history to get working capital loans. Now, using Fairbank, Fairbank actually goes up the supply chain and gets the anchor member of that supply chain. Let's say it's a large consumer products company, a multi-billion dollar consumer products company that wants to be able to sell more through the neighborhood store. They are happy to provide the collateral through Fairbank. And so it's a win-win because the, the neighborhood store, the Warung in Indonesia, can get the working capital and the large CPG company can actually sell more. Uh, another example in India that we recently invested is a company called Chatibao that's building a WhatsApp-based interface for the neighborhood Kirana store to be able to sell its product to consumers. So a consumer that is living 100 meters away from the store, instead of actually going to the store, can send a WhatsApp message that gets sent to the Chatibao technology and the tech enables the fulfillment, the payment, and the, the delivery of that product. So a couple of examples. I think SMEs are transforming very rapidly, and they have to, and they are. Yes, I think it's so wonderful that we are investing to these companies that are going to empower the lives of MSLE, you know, the owners and also their families. And this is um, how we're going to create impact as a venture capital. Thank you so much, Ben, you know, for sharing the insights and obviously showing us your brilliance and uh, distilling the hard truth for us in terms of venture capital, in terms of startups and also life in general. Thank you, Elise. It was fun chatting with you. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Before we close, do remember to check out the podcast notes via the link in the episode description. We have for you the entire episode transcript, bite-sized summaries, and a wealth of other resources and content that we're sure you'll love. Also, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do spread the word and give us a thumbs up. It would help others find the show and mean a lot to us. Thank you for joining us. This is Hot Truths by Vertex. See you next time.